0: Welcome to The Get, the podcast for enterprise leaders, delivering timely insights for today's global economy and tomorrow's competitive advantage. I'm your host, Chris Kane, President of the Center for Global Enterprise. And today we will focus on how the Ukraine crisis is restructuring economic relationships and business models across the world. With the unprecedented economic sanctions against Russia, global business leaders are having to adjust to new rules governing critical economic and business relationships. The Ukraine crisis has sent the oil, commodity, agriculture, and stock markets reeling, and there is the potential for additional sanctions, as well as no end in sight to the conflict. The question business leaders must ask is, is this a permanent reshaping of global economic relationships and financial systems? To share their views and insights for business leaders, we are fortunate to have with us today Sam Palmisano, founder and chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise and former chairman and CEO of IBM, and Michael Spence, Nobel laureate and former dean of the Stanford School of Business, to discuss restructuring economic relationships and business models driven by the Ukraine crisis. Sam and Mike, welcome. Mike, perhaps we can begin with you. Are the strict economic sanctions in place today a temporary measure, or are we witnessing the start of a redesign of global economic and financial relationships?
1: I would say the best guess is they're temporary, at least in this extreme form. This is an attempt to counter Russian aggression as perceived in the West without engaging in direct military conflict other than by the Ukraine and we've seen sanctions before and they've been withdrawn, I would be very surprised if, if these sanctions become a permanent feature of the world. Having said that, I don't think anybody should conclude that the world after the Ukraine war and the rising geopolitical tensions is going to revert to the way it was several years ago. That's just not going to happen. And there's an important element of that is potential repeated use of sanctions at least as long as the United States has as high a level of control um, over the global financial
0: system and and financial flows as it has now. So Sam, from your perspective, I know as a CEO at IBM, you dealt with sanctions and you had to navigate IBM's business around different constraints and restrictions imposed by governments. Do you see these sanctions as temporary? Do you see them as the beginning of a restructuring of the environment
2: that business leaders have to operate within? I'm where Mike is. I think at the end of this, they won't be as severe, but I imagine that in the negotiation, hopefully the war does end at a reasonable time frame, like soon. But in those negotiations, you can imagine there's going to be some easing or adjustment to the sanctions. I can't imagine that the parties are going to accept it as they are, and that will be part of the settlement process. I could be naive about that, but I think that's a reasonable assumption. Now, having made that assumption, there's certain things that have occurred that aren't going to reverse themselves like Europe's dependency on energy. There are structural investments occurring right now in places that you never thought would have occurred to add the, the ports of entry, LNG facilities, billions and billions of dollars. I've never seen Germany in our experience move so quickly and it's been phenomenal with the pace that they've moved. Once they make those investments and they get alternate sources, whether that's North America or the Middle East, that's that's not going to be reversed. There's just too much capital investment that's going to occur. Now, there are all these complications with that, with climate change and all those sorts of things, but they have to, in the short term, solve the energy problem. I also think a significant advantage, as we were looking at this from an IBM perspective. As foreign directed, I mean, there was a lot of foreign direct investment into the Russian Federation and we participated in that benefit, quite honestly, our business grew nicely there because of foreign investment, more so than the local economy, which was mostly energy driven. So having said all that, I think that companies are going to rethink foreign investment for a very long time. It doesn't mean it won't change, but we always at IBM, we looked at one of the criteria was stability of government. And no one can conclude that the administration now in the Russian Federation is a stable environment where one would like to invest.
0: So a number of the largest economies in the world have chosen not to participate or to participate partially in the economic sanctions that the G7 and Europe and US and Japan have levied on Russia accordingly. That in and of itself forces CEOs to think about those investment flows and those decisions about where to invest and the constraints that are gonna be put on their freedom of operation because of those decisions that China and India and a couple of other countries have made, large economies in their own. Think about 12 to 15 months out, what advice would you give to CEOs as they grapple with the new operating and financial restrictions and additional fallout from the Ukraine crisis? And adding to that complexity, the economic and political dynamics taking place with China, the world's second largest economy. So let me endorse something Sam just said and, and maybe extend it.
1: I think the trigger for a pattern of diversification that we're going to see over a long period of time is the European energy operation to, you know, reduce its dependence on Russian fossil fuels. But I don't think it'll stop there. We are living in a world that's become shock prone, where the shocks are pretty severe. They come from climate change, geopolitical tensions, blockages in supply chains that are much, much longer than we thought before, et cetera. It's not just speaking to the leaders of corporations. This will become probably a strategic priority, but it's going to be backed up by it becoming a national priority in a lot of countries. And they're not going to sit around and wait for the private sector to decide this. When we look forward, we should anticipate that diversification is going to become an important part of strategy at multiple levels. And then the scenario we all hope doesn't happen is the one in which the world economy gets divided up into sectors. So, Chris, what you just said is there's a whole bunch of countries that don't want to go down that road, right? China's one of them. China doesn't want to be caught in the spillover of the sanctions from Russia. Nobody sensible in China wants to, to get cut off from the global economy and global technology and so on. Now, that may end up being the out, you know, because they're kind of caught in a hard place vis-a-vis their apparent support of Russia. But they are not violating the sanctions at the moment in a way that would invite the, the spillover effect. I don't think it's very easy to know. There's a very large part of the world that doesn't want to get caught up in some kind of battle between the United States and Europe now, on the one hand, and China on the other. And I I think that resistance will start to have some considerable effect because individually, they may not be very important economies, but collectively, um, as in the Cold War, you can't afford to just ignore them. I guess if I were in the position of trying to make strategy... At the corporate level the first thing i would do is to try to get a sense of which way the wind is blowing with respect uh to these forces that are dividing the world into sort of two camps and then a bunch of people who don't want to join one of those camps
0: yeah we saw the non-aligned movement for many decades during the cold war and i guess mike I'd, i'd ask you and sam to think about the concept of an economic Cold War? Are we moving into a phase of economic Cold War? But before we get to that, Sam, advice for CEOs over the next 12 to 15 months about how to make strategic investments and and decisions?
2: I think I'm gonna align quite honestly with Mike and I come in from a little different perspective. When we were at IBM, uh, when we launched the world was globally integrating, one of the assumptions we made, I used to say this actually publicly in speeches, that as long as the developing world doesn't have a coup or a war, and they just engage with the global economy, they're going to grow. They did did this for decades, guys, by the way, and the world became economically interconnected. I don't think anybody wants the world to disconnect completely. It would hurt their own economies. At the end of the day, I make the assumption that political leaders understand they need economic growth to sustain the standard of living for their people. Now, sometimes you hear the rhetoric and you wonder about that. But I think most of them get it at the end of the day. So therefore, they're not going to disconnect. However, and Mike alluded to this, they're going to be areas where they're going to define themselves as areas that are strategically important to their national security. And that's where the tension, in my opinion, is going to occur. And you're going to have now the West. And I can give some examples of this versus really China, because you could argue India is OK, but they're not China when it comes to investment in some of these future technology areas. So fundamentally, that's where the tension, I believe, is going to occur. So there could be huge elements of the economies that can stay interconnected. Many ways, China can continue to be the world's factory in many of those spaces, textiles, material, those kinds of things, consumer products, what have you. But if you get to like quantum computing or artificial intelligence or cyber, those kinds of things or biosynthetics. It's going to be a whole different world. And this is where if you watch semiconductors right now, if you watch what's going on, Clearly, everybody's reallocating their resources to local supply, redesigning their supply chains. But not only does the U.S. have a $51 billion called the Innovation Act, which was the CHIPS Act, there's also a bill in, in the EU for 40 billion euros to do a similar thing. And there's collaboration going on now between Germany and the U.S. In ways that they should co- collaborate in these spaces, because it's... It doesn't make a lot of sense to do redundant investment you know, when it comes to the future of semiconductors. Anyway, you're starting to see this stuff start to align. Is my point with their strategic areas, semiconductors, dependence on Asia, especially Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't think it's going to be a huge disconnection. I know there's a lot of discussion around that. I just think it hurts everybody's economies and therefore their populations if they totally disconnect.
0: So, this concept of an economic cold war you think we're moving into one and economic relationships are going to be redesigned uh, to adjudicate uh, a macroeconomic cold war by governments separating on geopolitical discussions? Or is that a construct that you
2: don't see materializing? It depends what industry you're in. But if you're in a technology industry, you're going to have to understand these things and the implications to how you align your resources. But if you're a consumer packaged goods, it doesn't matter. I mean, are they going to put a tariff on a t-shirt and a sneaker? I mean, I could be naive. I just don't think so. I do think though, in those other areas are going to protect your intellectual property, they're going to make trillions of dollars of investments and those sorts of things to maintain leadership or get leadership if you're coming from behind. It's not as macro in my opinion. I think it's going to become more micro as you look at this thing over time. Now, if I stand back from it and decide how I would play it, if I'm in the technology industry. You're going to have to align your investments to the realities of what's happening here in, in those four or five segments that I've outlined. I mean, you can't escape that, right? You can't have the two biggest markets of the world, the two biggest research centers of the world, the technology leaders of the world, deciding not to cooperate and you don't have to adjust. They're going to have to adjust. So the idea of the old days of somebody putting the fabricator, a fabricator for a Western company and IBM or Intel in mainland China, I think that's over. I don't see that happening.
1: I agree with Sam. I think there are sensitive areas. Some of them are so sensitive, and this is not new, that for military and defense purposes, they just be cordoned off and controlled. But what's new is this sort of broader tint. We have a kind of a strategic competition underway between China and the United States, and that's not going to go away. That's inevitable. These two countries don't trust each other and their motivations. The goal of China is to catch up, and they're doing a pretty good job of it. And the goal of the United States probably should be not to fall behind through underinvestment. Now, there are a couple of ways to play this game, and I'm really just elaborating on what Sam said. There's a relatively benign form of strategic competition in which both countries you know, sort of work at. It's not maybe totally efficient, but if the America Competes Act, the investment in the semiconductors that China made in China 2025 and a whole bunch of other programs, you could get Sputnik-like accelerations in the development of beneficial technologies, when it gets ugly is when you try to sort of tie up the legs of the competitor by denying them key inputs. And so at, at the moment, which way this competition goes, the benign form or take the American side, for example, I think there's a fair number of people in Washington where the international agenda is being driven, as far as I can see, by national security things way more than in the past relative to economic considerations. I think there's a subset of people that think, you know, we can keep China in the technological rearview mirror forever. I don't think that's possible, and it's not, therefore, a reasonable goal. But that doesn't mean we have to help them. I think the best form is, is we compete. Bottom line is people who have to make significant investment decisions are going to live in a world in which countries are going to put restrictions on them or penalties or change the incentive structure or whatever. You don't get to go in your office and decide it on your own anymore. And that's just a reality uh, of the way the world works. Chris, you asked the question, is there any sort of governance structure of an international kind that's going to intervene and steer us in the right direction? I think the simple answer to that is no. Almost all the international institutions at this point just aren't functioning at a level that would make that possible. Not the G20, not the UN, not the IMF and World Bank. I think it's unrealistic. So this is gonna be decentralized nationalism in a very complex, much more complex global environment than we're used to.
0: Yeah, it seems like we have re-entered a period where economic and political alliances are reshaping. And to your point, the multilateral institutions that grew and created international rules for trade and international law, have been either atrophying or becoming bypassed by state players. So making the environment for choices by CEOs even more complicated, and to Sam's point, you, CEOs really have to increase their knowledge of national agendas.
2: We used to do these global forums with you know, leaders, CEOs, and also state you know, politicians or government leaders as well, annually around the world. But fundamentally, the conclusion even back then was the structures as they were, weren't working. And depending upon your view, either they weren't structured correctly, needed to be transformed, or the other view which was more cynical was they didn't have the skills, but either way they weren't working. And there was this yearning for some entity to emerge to do this, what was gonna be required in the future. Now this is like 10 years ago, and it's only gotten worse from that point in time. And none of us see that emerging, at least in the business community that I'm involved in, very few people see any entity emerging as we had after World War II.
1: One of the things that's going to happen in addition to diversification pressures, I think, which is just self-defense, right? Mario Draghi said, here in Italy, we're too dependent on Russian gas. It's just simply true. He described it as imprudent. That was a bit of an understatement. But in addition, I think what you're going to see is pressure to bias your relationships, investment and trade, toward what I call reliable trading partners. This is what Janet Yellen calls friend shore. And so I think that this does push us a little bit into the direction of the kind of spheres of
0: influence structures that we talked about before. Yeah, it it comes down to a, a geopolitical question of do you trust that political relationship you have with another country so that it transfers over to economic assurances and guarantees? So let's talk a little bit about investment flows. You both have talked about certain sectors that are going to be more focused on and restricted than others. What's aerospace and defense, new energy sources, artificial intelligence, space. Space has become a huge investment sector for companies, both as well as governments. Certainly semiconductors, communication technologies all seem to be highly competitive and sensitive sectors. Yet food. and maybe logistics, and maybe some of the other more staple sectors, maybe less so. Where do you see investment flows, Sam and Mike, going in these sectors that would be pronounced enough to create new markets and opportunities over the
2: next five years, given the context we've just been describing? I'll start with a couple different perspectives. One I know better is technology versus others. There's going to be a massive amount, both in the energy transition, as well as the other areas you've alluded to, Chris, is an investment and heavily oriented around R&D. There are several proposals I'm more familiar with the West. Well, I knew China spent a trillion dollars in these areas I'm referring to two years ago alone. That was more than Europe and the United States combined, needless to say. So there's going to be a significant amount of investment. The difference today versus the past is that the amount of money that's required to do the research and development were whether it's in, say, semiconductors or the energy transition, these are significant amounts of money. You can't expect the private sector on its own to take that much risk. So therefore, there has to be a model created whereby the private sector and the private markets can work with the government so that there's this comfort level on the risk associated with the investments that are required. You see it every day in the energy transition, Chris. I can get more detail in semiconductors and things, but you see it every day. Where all the physicists know and the geophysicists know what it takes to make the transition. The allocation of capital is a political decision. There could be a rational plan that gets you through this transition so you don't have $6 a gallon for gas, by the way. And same time, invest in the long-term technologies that are required that aren't scalable today to make the transition. But that's just driven by politics. It's not driven by uh, the models that exist. So my point is that the way you get around this you have to create a different model the current models aren't working. Yeah, I
1: think it's a very important point. This is going to feel different. Maybe we underestimate the importance of the state, even in the United States, in the past, in terms of these upstream investments that produce the human capital and some of the, some of the science and technology, that then, then this extraordinary system we've had turns into things that are useful, products, services, and so on and builds on those technologies. So I think that fundamental model isn't going to change, but the magnitude, as Sam said, of the government's needed participation, especially if we're in some kind of race with a with a strategic competitor is going to have to be very large. And you're starting to see it in the numbers in, in the America Competes Act or whatever the Senate and the House keep calling it different things and it hasn't passed yet. But we're going to get some version of that because that's one of the few areas where we have bipartisan agreement on the energy transition. It is political with an international dimension too. the estimates of the incremental investment that's required to get this done per annum are $3.5 trillion. Now that doesn't overwhelm the global economy, which is approaching $100 trillion, but It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Probably half of it has to come from government if it's going to work. Businesses can't deal with the externalities and the risk, as Sam said. But we live in a world right now in which productivity trends have been declining. We have significant headwinds coming from a bunch of sources, climate change, China slowing down, supply chain congestion. We have inflation rising, interest rates, and sovereign debt overhangs. From the great financial crisis and then the pandemic. And you ask yourself the question are we really going to come up with $3.5 trillion a year in that kind of environment? What has to happen? Oh, by the way, I didn't mention aging populations in three quarters of the world's economies Mm -hmm. measured by GDP. These are pretty big headwinds when you see them together. So I think some of the things corporate leaders have to do is make a really realistic assessment of the environment that they're gonna operate in everything I just said, I don't think is a permanent condition. I actually a bit of an optimist on getting a product desurge from the digital technologies eventually. But this is going to be a really tough environment for the next,
0: you know, half a decade or so. Well thank you both very much. Before we close, we like to use the last minute or so to give our listeners some strategic insights to think about and we call it our emerging critical issues moment. So let me ask you both for one word or one phrase, please tell us what emerging issue do you see on the horizon that business leaders need to put on their radar? So I thought about something Sam said, which is it depends on the industry
1: you're in. And then I asked myself the question, what's the one thing that virtually everybody has to deal with? And my answer to that is the energy transition. It's got to be a critical part of it. literally everybody's strategy. Sam? Designed for
0: disruption. All right. Very good. Thank you both very much for your time. It was great to be with you. And we'll come back to these two topics and our emerging critical issues moment for future shows. Sam, Mike, thank you very much for your time and your insights today. The GET is sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise, celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformation issues. All production and marketing for the GET is provided by Sandow Design Group. Our theme music is by Duzzy Funlove, available on Spotify. The GET is available wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Center for Global Enterprise, Go to www.thecge.net and thank you for listening.